Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Make sure you join that travel club so you can be the first to know when we are on the go because we are going to some fantastic places in 2023 and in 2024. But you won't know about it if you're not on the list or listening to the show. Just head on over to TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and join in the fun. Today, healthcare professional Yolanda Como is here with a new year, a healthier you installment of staying healthy while you travel. So get ready to take some notes and plan ahead for your upcoming year of travel. And we're also going to be updating the RX travel bag. So you want to make sure that you stay tuned for that. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. Did you know that the United States does not have a senior level tourism official? Well, we don't. And that has cost the U.S. travel industry billions of dollars and millions of visitors. However, this will soon change with the newly created Assistant Secretary of Travel and Tourism. The office was created by the Omnibus Travel and Tourism Act, which was included in the massive government funding package passed by Congress on December 23rd. The U.S. has historically been the only country among the G20 to not have a cabinet-level tourism office. It is still unclear when this person will be appointed, especially given that a budget has not been approved that would fund the job. The idea of the office came out of the 1995 White House Conference on Travel and Tourism, but it was shelved due to the politics of that particular era. It gained steam again after the pandemic reignited public awareness about the importance of international visitors, why the travel experience matters, and the value of the industry. One of its goals certainly will be to drive the travel industry toward success. So sitting inside the U.S. Department of Commerce, the assistant secretary will be responsible for coordinating across the federal agencies to leverage travel to be an economic driver. The assistant secretary will break down agency silos and coordinate action on the problems impacting travel, like the return of Chinese tourists or the recent Southwest meltdown. And I'm quite sure they're going to address the FAA system outage. The Commerce Department's U.S. Travel and Tourism Advisory Board, which is made up of two-year term members appointed by the Secretary of Commerce will be tasked with advising the Assistant Secretary. On January 13th, the Commerce revealed a list of 32 appointees who will sit on the board tasked with the new mandate. The U.S. Travel Association has approved the list. It will also be to steer smarter policy making at the federal level the industry will have someone whose job it is to stick up for it and at the policymaking table. 
a key priority will be resolving the visitor visa B1 and B2 interview wait times, which have exploded to over 400 days on average for visitors from Brazil, Mexico, India, and other top inbound markets. Just consider when you apply for a visa to visit another country, it usually takes two to four weeks, but think about 400 days on average just to get an interview. The delayed disaster will cost the industry $12 billion in 2023 and will be the reason international travel won't reach pre-pandemic levels until 2025. Consider the number of jobs and the economy overall that is impacted by the travel industry. But as I said, we will still have to wait. Unfortunately, the issues that plague the industry will have to wait to be addressed even longer. A timeline for filling the job has not yet been set, but the president will nominate a candidate. The Senate Commerce Committee will hold a hearing on the candidate and then vote on that candidate according to U.S. Travel. U.S. Travel is working with lawmakers in the new Congress to appropriate resources for the office. Well, how about traveling back in time? There's a new exhibit at the Illinois Holocaust Museum, and it is the Negro Motorist Green Book. I'm sure you may have heard of it by now. The Negro Motorist Green Book, an exhibition developed by the Smithsonian Institute Traveling Exhibition Service in collaboration with award-winning author, photographer, and cultural documentarian Candace Taylor is coming to the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center just in time, of course, for Black History Month. The exhibit will open January 29th and will run through April 23rd of this year. Well, what is the Negro Motorist Green Book? The Green Book, first published in 1936 under the title The Negro Motorist Green Book, was created for the growing African-American middle class who had the desire and the financial means to travel the country, but were restricted from many of the resources and accommodations that were necessary. The exhibit will offer viewers an opportunity to travel back in time through the perspective of the traveler with an immersive and participatory exhibit. Viewers will experience the reality of travel for African-Americans in mid-century America and how the annual guide served as an indispensable resource for the nation's rising African-American middle class. This during the time of Jim Crow laws. The museum will highlight local connections to the Chicago area in the exhibition with a looping projection of over 55 images of local Green Book sites mixed with contemporary images of some of those locations. So make sure you check that out again. It's running from January 29 through April 23rd and it's at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. How would you like to have a cowboycation? Sounds interesting. Well, Yellowstone is creating a cowboycation travel trend for 2023. People are booking trips in search of experiencing the cowboy lifestyle. And yes, it's called cowboycation. You get cowboys on horses, overlooking snow-topped mountains, and kind of just living the life of a cowboy. Maybe there's a dude rancher too included in that as well. The popularity of it probably comes from the TV show Yellowstone. And everybody has been awing over the show's stunning scenery, beautiful backdrops, and Yellowstone seems to be enticing viewers to come and see 
for themselves the wide open spaces of the American West and why not do it in cowboycation style? So if you're heading west, here are some that stand out, although there are many other locations. You can have either an Airbnb, some cabin lodges and so forth, but these are some of the standout destinations. Texas is one. And yeah, we're thinking Cowboys, Texas definitely is top of mind, but they have over 250,000 farms, 126 million acres of farmland. And the Lone Star State has also been getting some travel buzz lately. The other state is Montana. Yes, that too is considered when you think about cowboys, but it's referred to as the treasure state and the big sky state. And of course, their beautiful sceneries, open spaces, ranches, beautiful landscapes, and a perfect location for a cowboycation. Wyoming is another, nicknamed the cowboy state. Yes, <laughs> Wyoming is certainly an obvious choice for that. They have seven national parks. Very impressive. Of course, there's Old Faithful, Jackson Hole, Grand Teton National Park. And also, you know, if you want to dude or not, the cowboycation is not completely a new concept, of course. Remember the film City Slickers, where Billy Crystal and his friends went out west to a dude ranch? back in 1991. Yes, there are some dude ranch vacation spots that you can check out as well. But it's very important, and this is very key, that the National Park Services especially and this Yellowstone cowboycation want you to remember is that with any increase in tourism in an area, there's always the possibility of adverse effects. So while the majority of locales and business owners have embraced travelers seeking a cowboycation, there are some ways guests can make sure to leave positive impression on the local environment. So you want to make sure that you be aware of those privacy and respect from the visitors. American Airlines and JetBlue have added 11 new routes as part of an expanded Northeast Alliance. JetBlue has announced the start date of their new routes, and American Airlines and JetBlue are continuing to grow that Northeast alliance despite pending lawsuit against the carrier's tie-up. Both airlines are adding new and expanded routes from New York and Boston under the so-called Northeast Alliance. So JetBlue will have four times daily routes to Atlanta, Bermuda once daily, only in the summer season, Hyannis, Massachusetts once daily for the summer seasonal, Nassau, Bahamas once daily, and additionally, the fifth route announced recently planned to seasonally fly between Boston Logan and Vancouver International Airport. For American Airlines, they have six new routes starting on May 5, 2023. Birmingham, Buffalo, Columbia, South Carolina, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, and additionally, many of these small cities are significant in the expansion of the Northeast Alliance. That's because the only other airline serving these routes currently is Delta. And this is according to some schedules that are already posted. United Airlines has opened a new club lounge at Chicago O'Hare, starting the new year off in style. And the lounge is considered by most to be state of the art. Brand new United Club at Chicago O'Hare International Airport with a lot of new features and it is officially open. It's gonna be in Chicago O'Hare's Terminal One 
the part of the airport that handles both mainland United Airlines flights and those operated in its regional United Express brand. It also represents all Nippon Airways and Lufthansa Airlines. Passengers wishing to visit the new United Club in Chicago will find it in Terminal 1 C Concourse, the nearest gate between C10, measuring 17,000 square feet. It'll definitely be hard to miss. The new United Club Lounge will have an upgrade digital space. For example, rather than having to manually check into the lounge in person with a host, there's an option to self-scan, which allows passengers to enter the lounge via e-gates. And United has also installed Wi-Fi throughout the lounge and more workspace. Who can use the lounge? Well, its access to the club lounges and the new facility at Chicago will be gained in a number of different ways. United Airlines Polaris Business, International Business, and Premium Transcontinental Business Class passengers are granted entry without guests, unfortunately. So this is also the case for business class on other Star Alliance carriers, although first class ticket holders can bring a guest. Star Alliance members can also enter regardless of their class of travel as long as they are still flying on a Star Alliance carrier that day. Additionally, Maple Leaf Club members from the United Star Alliance partner Air Canada can access United Club lounges either in the U.S. or worldwide depending on their membership and a similar deal is in place for members of Virgin Australia's Velocity program. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and healthcare professional Yolanda Como with a new year, Healthier You edition of Staying Healthy While You Travel. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, join the Travel Club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Travel planning can be stressful. However, you can do a few things to help you plan better and reduce pre-trip planning stress so you'll start off with peace of mind. One is to be flexible. Having a strict plan or not allowing some flexibility can add stress when the need for change arises or when mishaps occur. Have a more carefree state of mind and go with the flow. Make a list of your must-haves and must-dos. Having this list will ensure that you include those things that are at the top of your list. This way, they are not forgotten or not factored in to your timetable. Make a traveler's checklist before you go. Start your list a couple of weeks before your trip, including the things you need to pack and things you need to do in preparation of your trip. This will provide you with less stress leading up to your trip and lessen the possibility of forgetting important items. Plan to have at least one day of self-care and R&R. Travel itself, especially one that is scheduled with tours, can leave you tired. Building in a self-care day or a day of R&R will allow you to rest, relax, and rejuvenate. Happy trails. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute.
Well, travel is back in full effect for 2023. We're actually back, if not exceeding pre-pandemic numbers. While staying healthy while you travel has been primarily focused on COVID over the past two years, we should generally and always keep our health top of mind. Rejoining me is healthcare professional Yolanda Como with a new installment of Staying Healthy While You Travel for 2023. Hey, Yolanda, welcome back. Hello, Javon. How are you? I am. Happy New Year. I know. Happy New Year. It's still January, so I guess we can still say that. <laughs> I usually continue to say it if I've seen them the first time that year. Yeah, so. makes sense. Absolutely makes In sense. January. The thing is, is to remember to write 2023 and not so. 2022. <laughs> I've done that a few times and already I'm like, oh my goodness. So what have you been up to? Where have you traveled to? Well, I recently went to Spain. I was in Spain in October. Yeah, I, know. I hadn't Personally, I hadn't traveled since 2019. Wow. Well, working in the healthcare industry, had that impacted your decision? Oh, definitely. Well, working with all the COVID restrictions and stuff with traveling, I know they have relaxed them since. What are we going year three with this COVID? I know. But, you know, I just felt comfortable not traveling at the time. How did it feel the first time out of the gate? It was okay. I mean, carrying your mask, make sure you're protecting yourself. It was a little strange. There were tons of people out there, and lots of people are traveling. Just be careful and keep your distance and stay safe, healthy. Yeah. And there were a lot more seniors than I really mm-hmm. expected to see traveling because seniors were the ones that really stopped traveling a lot. But I think that absolutely changed. I think for seniors, it's like I'm going now because yeah. who knows when I'll have another opportunity. Yeah, I feel for them because that's part of their enjoyment and for them to be stuck in home, you know, domestically for what, over two years, that had to be tough. Yeah. And it's what's called the golden years. So especially those that were physically healthy enough and had saved well, done well for themselves financially and had the time and the money to do so and still physically fit to do so, those two years made a big impact on seniors. I can only imagine. Yeah, it really did. Well, let's get to the matter at hand because it's super important. And I think we think about it more now than we ever had before, our health and traveling. So are there any particular concerns now and for 2023? Basically the same, but even more because there are so many health issues and viruses challenging us here in the new year, particularly, you know, the flu season is upon us in full effect. COVID, of course, is still lingering out there. And I just thought maybe, you know, we can talk a little bit about keeping our immunity up and boosting and keeping our immune system up to par, particularly be useful when you're traveling. So just think a little extra about getting your immunity up to par and staying a little healthy in that range. So, you know, you can have an enjoyable travels. And also when you're at home, it's COVID and the flu and everybody's coughing and sneezing. You just want to protect yourself and feel good about walking around in crowds and people are still venturing out at activities and events. So you want to be feeling okay when you're able to travel and go to these events. And you know, you said something you said, and even coming back, I think we have to consider that too. You know, we travel, we've had a great time. Let's say we've taken all the precautions and everything, but coming back home, Because we have to get back to our life when we get back home. And so if you're coming back home and then, boom, you're sick again, or you're sick for the first time, or whatever that is in the process, 
So I like that you said, and coming back home. Well, it's funny that you said that because the first time I traveled in two and a half years, I guess I went to Spain in October and I got sick. I got sick when I came home. After four days after being home, I was really, really sick. It was a bad case, not of the flu or of COVID. It was just a very bad cold. Lots of coughing for a couple of weeks and very stuffy and congested. Yeah. And I know that RSV, for example, they've been talking a lot about how it's affecting children. But I have known a lot of adults who have some of those symptoms of RSV, this persistent cough and almost like a bronchitis type of thing, has it spilled over into adulthood? It must have. You know, like I said, my issue wasn't cold because I tested myself and it wasn't the flu. And I think maybe it is spilled over into like adults are catching it. The ERs are packed. There's really not a whole lot that they can do when you go to the ER unless you're like truly dehydrated and you just need extra respiratory treatment. They can handle all that in ER, but the ERs are full. So if you can kind of make phone calls to your hospital just to see if it's okay to come in or you think it's a good idea to come in or even go to your urgent care, they probably will send you home and tell you to nurse yourself at home. And essentially, that's what I did. I didn't require any hospital treatments or anything. You know, one of the things that I do and I love, and I don't know if all doctors are the same way, but I have an excellent primary care. And I use the portal. And if I type a question in there, send a message, I get an answer back either from her or from her medical assistant or nurse practitioner. practitioner, Mm -hmm. And she's communicated with the doctor. But a lot of times I get a message directly from the doctor and they respond in less than 24 hours and will let you know, well, if this persists, come in or take your temperature and asking me some questions and then saying, okay, well, do this. And if it doesn't better, then come in, you know, make an appointment to see me, but otherwise do these things. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love the system because who wants to actually get up and go? Right. No one. And or have to pay for another doctor's visit. We just really want some guidance. Right. And if you are hovering over to the ER, you got to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And you're going to wait. So you're just going to feel miserable waiting in the waiting room of the ER. So, yes, if you can communicate portal, you know, with your physician, they can kind of coach you through the email narratives and stuff. If you're capable of doing that, some people probably don't have capability of doing it. But if you're savvy with computers and stuff and you're my charts, yeah, that's a very good idea. I love that. I don't drive my (laughs) doctor crazy, but I do utilize it a lot. They rather (laughs) that you inquire and ask questions through that yeah. rather than come in and find there was no need for you to be there. Yeah. Well, why is it so important to make sure that we're in good health when we travel? Protecting ourselves from illnesses and combating them if we do become ill, it benefits you by keeping your immune system at par, by practicing good health, healthy, smart behaviors at home and while you're traveling. So people around you don't get ill or you don't contract anything from others. So just learn how to protect yourself and, of course, how to protect others. Yeah. So it's beyond just I feel good. It's really making sure you're in good health. Make sure you're in good health. Yes. And so where do we start in this journey of staying healthy while we travel? So as usual, 
hygiene health is the primary thing that you should be focused on. And of course, it's washing your hands, keeping them nice and clean at every opportune time because your hands, they're what's picking up germs. And if you're a traveler, you're picking germs up everywhere. So anytime you have the opportunity to wash your hands with soap and water, I advise you to do that. And if there isn't any soap and water available, make sure you're using hand sanitizers or carry wet ones. Those hands have to stay clean because you're picking up germs and you're transferring them. I know you don't see them, but you are. We do a lot of things with our hands. Rub our eyes. And you're just putting germs on you and in your mouth and you're eating and you're just think about that, people. So just wash your hands. Yeah. It's still today. And it's amazing to me, grown, I won't say the word, people, grown bleep (laughs) people that use the restroom and do not wash their hands. And just understanding that they're transporting that everywhere, bodily fluids, in addition to it just being unsanitary if they're sick, it's just something else. But I'm just amazed that I still see people come out of the bathroom. And and I I don't understand it as well, but I wouldn't say, I'm not going to call someone lazy, but it's just their habit, their behavior unfortunately and that's why it's important that you are washing your hands yeah and you are staying away keeping your distance and doing other things yeah i mean i've always washed my hands of course going to the restroom i can't say that i was as good with washing my hands as i should have been like being out and about and those kind of things but COVID did change that so the first thing i do when i return home is to wash my hands mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's amazing you see what comes off your hands in the sink you're like oh I didn't even realize my hands were dirty you know <laughs> yes yes wash your hands people <laughs> also you know keep with the COVID rules wear a mask if you're traveling I would carry mask and I would definitely put it on especially if I'm on a plane if I'm in a crowd that I'm not comfortable with and I'm keeping my distance six feet apart from others. I mean, you can still talk with people and have conversations, but just be cognizant of what's happening around you. And always cover your sneeze and coughs. Please do that. And your elbow. <laughs> and that's a good trick. And if people are speaking to you, like feel like they are getting a little too close, it's okay to step back. And when they see that, they know. They know that they need to keep their distance as well. And disinfect if you can. You know, carry those little sanitizing, disinfecting sprays and disinfect your tray tables. Wipe your areas down. Wipe down handrails and whatever you think you're going to be touching for prolonged periods of time. And areas that you're sitting for prolonged periods of time, like on the plane. It's less bizarre than it used to be. Because I used to be amongst a very small percentage of people that would wipe down my seatbelt buckle, the armrest the tray table and people would kind of look at you a little funny but today they don't COVID changed that you still won't find the majority of people doing it but people don't see it as odd as they used to before they would look at you like you were a germaphobe now they just like okay (laughs) (laughs) so how does self-care help keep us healthy Everybody should have some idea of taking some time out for themselves and think about how they want to make themselves feel good and focusing on self alone. Less stress, trying to relieve stress from your life or yourself at the moment. I know traveling is very stressful when you're getting ready for your trips and stuff, but that actually interferes with your immune system. So 
if you are totally stressed, your immune system would be deprived and lessened. So just try and plan ahead. I think planning ahead would make yourself less stressful than you are. Think about your oral health, your oral hygiene, brushing, flossing, and gargling. It's kind of difficult, I would say, sometimes and a little challenging to keep your oral hygiene up to par because you're on a plane, you're not brushing as much as you would be if you were at home, but you should take portable items to keep your oral hygiene intact, like flossing or those little brushes that you can use on the plane. Definitely try to get massages if you can as leading up to that. If you're not getting a massage every month now, it's a good idea to try and do so. I try and get spa treatments while I'm traveling on my trips. I'll make appointments and I'll probably get a massage while I'm on the trip. Also use the health club at the Mm -hmm. hotels for yoga. They have a lot of the hotels, they offer like morning yoga classes. So you should consider doing that. I would get out and do some walking when I get to my destination. That helps you a lot, get circulation moving, help prevent blood clots and DVTs. And also, it helps with your vitamin D if you get out there in the Mm -hmm. sun. It helps to put you on track with the time zone as well, so you don't get jet lag. Those are all great tips. Now, you also say that it's an inside-out job. What do you mean by that? Inside in your body, you want to stay hydrated. Try and drink plenty, plenty of water. I think six to eight glasses of water a day is the recommendation right now. But I like to drink those water with the electrolytes in it, like the Gatorade brands. It has a lot of nice electrolytes in there, sodium, potassium, a lot of things that aren't replenishable. Should you drink maybe one of those a day or is there... If you're doing a lot of activity, especially tours, and I recommend taking one on the tour with you. Oh, okay. Yeah. You lose a lot of energy Mm -hmm. when you're doing, especially on those walking tours. Yeah. It'll help replenish and refresh your body. But pure water, there's nothing will beat that. So if you can just make sure you're just drinking water and not always drinking sodas and stuff when you're on your tours. The drinks with the electrolytes in, they also have vitamins in it as well. Now, keep in mind also fresh fruits and vegetables is a thing. And that also will help boost your immunity as well while you're traveling and while you're at home. Definitely your fish your almonds, your omega-3s, your heart-healthy diets will keep your immunity up to par as well. Try not to do late-night dining. I know a lot of times when you are traveling, you like to get together with friends while you're on the trip and go out for late-night drinks and have heavy meals. So try to avoid that too because that's only going to bring you down. And a lot of heavy drinking, you want to avoid that as well. Go ahead and have your wines or however you drink, but try not to do so much heavy drinking while you're out and about. Get your sleep. That's truly the most important thing because when you're sleeping, your body is redeveloping your brain cells and your cells in your body. So while you're sleeping, your body is working. like It's like a little machine. So it can't do that if you're not getting enough hours of sleep. Seven to eight hours is what's recommended. I know it's hard for us. That's when a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're on vacation, shouldn't it be a little easier? Well, sometimes it is. It depends on what your schedule is. So if you have an early morning rise, then I guess you just have to go to bed earlier. <laughs> on your trips is always an early morning <laughs> rise. It really is. But I guess you just have to go to bed earlier. But some of us like to stay up late and, yeah. and chat and those kind of things. So that's the only times that it becomes 
becomes a little difficult to do. But it also helps sleeping and getting that rest, especially in the first couple of days or nights Mm -hmm. that you are away. It helps you get you set on the time zone as well. So you're not so exhausted or, you know, you're on the tours, you know, yawning or just feeling tired and in a slump. Yeah, that's a horrible feeling, too. And you don't really get a chance to enjoy yourself when you feel that way. Now, COVID is not a thing of the past. Unfortunately, it isn't, even though we aren't really treating it the way that we used to in 2020, certainly in 2021, and even last year. So where are we with COVID and what precautions should we take? Well, with COVID, to be honest with you, COVID is going to be with us. I'm not going to say for a while, I just know that it's here to stay. It's pretty much going to be like the flu is here to stay and they're going to be asking to get boosters every fall, just like the flu shot. By recommendation of your own physician, you should go along with what they recommend that you do in Mm. terms of if you want to get reboosted in the falls or, you know, just see where your levels are or even if you should get vaccinated because there's still people who do not want to get vaccinated. Yeah. So if that's their choice, that's their choice. But you should go along with what Mm -hmm. your doctor recommends. But if you're traveling, and like I said, they have relaxed a lot of the rules for it, but some countries still are recommending and asking that you are vaccinated and some have relaxed it. With United States, currently, I know if you're coming from certain areas, United States would like to know if you have been vaccinated or that you are COVID negative prior Mm -hmm. to entering back into the country. So the goal is for worldwide or globally, like at least 60% of the global population to be vaccinated. And that will help with herd immunity around the world. I'm just surprised that we're not there yet. Now, what about other vaccinations and immunizations? Well, since we are well into our flu season right now, is once again, you speak with your doctor and see if it's available for you or if it's something that's recommended for you. But I personally get a flu shot every year. So no one is saying that you won't contract any of this. But if you were to contract it and you have the vaccines, you won't be as sick you won't end up in the hospital on a ventilator, okay? But you probably would be nursing it as such, maybe at home and, you know, bed rest and fluids and all the other things that you need to do to nurse a cold, you know, in general. You probably need to speak with your doctors as well about any other vaccines, like childhood vaccines. They're asking certain people of of certain ages now to get re vaccinated because titers are low and they're seeing an uptake of these childhood illnesses coming back. What can we do in general for our health? Well, besides eating and drinking, you know, nourishing your body with foods, you should think about taking vitamin supplements. I love that the vitamins, if you go to the store, like to the drugstores and stuff, they have them age specific. Yeah, I do get the ones specific to my age yeah. and gender. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that's so cool. And read the label, you guys. It tells you exactly what your body needs for your specific age. If you need a heavy dose of vitamin C or vitamin D, it'll have that for you. Yeah. So it's calibrated based you on know, your helps age. helps with your bones yeah. and your immunity status at that time. And those are over the counter, everyone. So take your vitamins get physical 
get in shape. I do some things every week now trying to get myself in shape. And I'm a long way from it, but I'm doing my best. <laughs> yeah, as am I. You know, I can feel the difference when mm-hmm. I've been in shape and when I'm not. So I can definitely feel the difference. My body feels more fatigued. And also mentally, you just don't want to do as much as when you are more yeah. physically fit. Exactly. I try to go to bed a little earlier, but I've been having so much energy since I've been trying to work out and do various things mm-hmm. with myself to keep myself active. I'm not as tired, as you said, and I'm more awake. And I'm able to do more things around the house after I get home from work or spend a little extra hours out to run errands, and I'm not feeling so just out of it. Yeah. So, yeah, so get physical. Think about that. And once again, drink your water. Mm-hmm. Drink your water. Try and stay away from the soft drinks. It's okay to go Starbucks. Unfortunately, I do go Starbucks every other day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the green tea, so I don't drink coffee, but I like the well, green Well, sometimes tea. you have to treat yourself to something, and, and I think it's okay because but we I keep like it to, in moderation. I would like to think matcha is kind of <laughs> <laughs> healthy. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> yes. We'll see. I'm not sure. I can't tell you whether it is or isn't. Now, again, how can we prepare ourselves maybe with an RX bag, for example? You did a list for us a couple of years ago, I think, with an RX bag and some of the things oh, we should yes. take with us. Yeah, so carrying a health kit or putting together a health kit, I think it's a very, very good idea. Actually, I saw someone on online doing this the other day. I thought it was a coincidence that they were doing it and I was thinking about it. Just keeping it in your car or taking it with you on your travels is very helpful because you never know when the unexpected happens. Things like band-aids, creams, ointments, antihistamines, acetaminophen, also known as Tylenol or ibuprofen, anti-inflammatories, cold packs, heating packs, Mm -hmm. wraps like ACE wraps, gauze, tape, you know, things like that. Just throw all that in your little baggie. I'm telling you, it's a lifesaver. You never know. You may have issues in the middle of the night while you're traveling or something may happen on the beach. Or you may get up in the middle of the night and just not feeling well. just got a headache. Yeah. And those things are very hard to come by sometimes in some countries. And how remote you are. Or, as you said, in the middle of the night, nothing's open. So it's nice to have something there, whether it's a cold or flu or headache or body ache or Mm -hmm. whatever that is. So thank you for that list. And I'm hoping that everybody does put together their health kit, especially those things that include the -the over-the-counters, because they are a big saver when you travel. And, you know, you can get a kit off Amazon, but when you get it, add to it. Yeah. You know, add the things that you know that you may need. Yeah. And things specific to you. For example, I keep eye drops because I have dry eye. So I keep those things with me. So those things that are specific to your needs as well. Exactly. Well, Yolanda, thank you so much for joining me today and giving us such great information. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. When I come back, I have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and make sure you sign up for the Travel Club because we go to some fantastic places and we want to make sure that you join us. You meet some wonderful people and we have a fantastic time each and every time we go. We become a nice little family. 
culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And on with me today is Warren Green from Warren Green and Associates. And Warren has a very interesting past and future and I guess present as well. I've met Warren through the travel industry, doing many programs to South Africa, and have always just had interesting conversations and someone who knows Africa very well, South African born, as a matter of fact. Well, hello, Warren, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi there, Javon. Thanks very much for having me on your broadcast today. We're going to be talking about Kenya, obviously, but you were born in South Africa and you're now living in the United States. How has that transition been? It has been a very interesting transition coming from the wide open spaces of South Africa to, I suppose, the confinement of suburban America was quite challenging for the first couple of years that we were here. Um, I didn't make it easy for myself by starting out in the Long Island area just outside Manhattan, where there's a fairly dense population. So that was my initiation. And it was also my boot out of there because I felt I needed space. And I'm now down in rural Virginia. I live on the Chesapeake Bay, which is absolutely gorgeous. I have wide open spaces all around me, um, acres of forest, creek frontage, and of course, the magical Chesapeake Bay out as my playground. Yeah, it is a beautiful area. I'm originally from D.C. and then grew up in Maryland, so very familiar with the DMV and Chesapeake area. So it seems like you were able to capture a little bit of the open space of South Africa moving to that area. Just a little bit. And, you know, funny enough, the population in and around this part of Virginia, in some ways, reminds me of the conservative population of South Africa. Um, I found the conversations, the views of people very similar to those of the Karoo just outside of the Western Cape um, hmm. and the Free State. Yeah. Very, very interesting. But today we're talking about Kenya because Warren is very familiar with and fond of, I won't say all things, but I will say many things, Africa. <laughs> Every time you and I meet, it's always in the space of the continent of Africa. So I'm always happy to run into you because of your aesthetic and the things that you like to do and the way in which you've established your company. So let's talk about Kenya and the culture of Kenya. Is there more than one native language of Kenya? Yeah, you know, so there are many misperceptions of Africa and its various countries. You know, I suppose you, you think of America where there's essentially two formal languages that are spoken, Spanish and English. And you would think that, you know, Kenya being a country of, of such smaller size would be limited to one or two languages. But in fact, there are 68 languages spoken throughout Kenya. Um, they could loosely be divided into, I suppose, three language groups or ethnic groups. Well, we could say four, but you've got Bantu, which is spoken by the Kikuyu, the Kamba and the Luya. Then you've got the Kushitic spoken by the Oromo, the Borana and the Orma. And then the Nilotic spoken by the Dolu and the Kilenjin people. English is the official language of the country and Swahili 
is also the second official language of the country. So those are the two that I suppose you would use to learn in schools and you would use for legal matters. And Swahili itself is a fairly young language. It's an evolution and an amalgamation of the various dialects spoken through the country. There's an Arabic influence on it as well. But that kind of is the lingua franca crossing all ethnic boundaries, Swahili. And Swahili was the first one that I was informed of as far as the language of Kenya and starting Mm. from, I guess, the people many, many years ago, but no one is considered Swahili anymore. It's just the language. And one of the things I like to do with the culture report is really talk about the roles of men and women in the society. Can you share some information with us on that? I can. Looking at the cultures of Africa and focusing on Kenya with the evolution of technology, and I suppose the availability of education, we're finding or I'm seeing cultures and specifically Kenyan culture is adapting and changing at quite a rapid rate. So in old Kenya, it would have been quite a patriarchal society where men dominated women. And there was a very clear distinction in gender roles. The male would be responsible for, I suppose, the economic well-being of a family unit. Whereas the female, the mother of the clan, would be responsible for all matters domestic, such as raising children, making food, and taking care of all those domestic tasks that fall into the lap of a woman. And I suppose, not trying to justify any of it, but I suppose it's a factor of practicality. As a woman, you breastfeed, and so you are, to some respect, bound by the development of your youngsters. And as a man, a man of the house, you don't have those same confinements. The youngster has very little to do with you in its early years. And your role is outdoors, herding cattle, dealing with societal issues and the bigger community issues. So there is a very clear distinction between, I'm saying the older days, going back into the earlier part of the last century. But that is now changing because women are becoming educated. They are, in a sense, being freed from the shackles of being locked into that domesticity that was so significant in the past. Because they're educated, they can be economically empowered as well. And it's no longer, I suppose, more in the urban environments, they are going to be more economically empowered than they are in the rural environments, where people still turn to traditional ways to maintain their lifestyles and maintain a living. And I'm glad you brought up the difference between urban and rural, because I think oftentimes when we think of other countries, we don't necessarily think of rural versus urban or modern versus traditional. Because one of the questions I was going to ask is, how much does that differ or do those roles differ for urban life versus rural life? Significantly, I think, is the short answer. I was chatting to a young-ish Maasai chief who's just under the age of 50. He has, at this stage of his life, four wives and 15 children, which is significant. So he still practices polygamy. Um, If you had to go and talk to a similar man of a similar age in an urban environment, you would probably find that he was monogamous with maybe three kids, maybe four. But Chief Lebolu has a vast family. He lives a very rural lifestyle. The boys in his community or in his manyata, his homestead, are responsible for shepherding the goats at a younger age. And as they progress to an older age, they then become responsible for the cattle. And so they have a very distinctive role in that little society. And so does he. His wives, on the other hand, being in that rural environment, are responsible for a whole set of other things that the men just don't touch. 
Uh, and the example of that would be, let's take it right down to its very basic bones. The men in that society would go out and bring back the raw materials to build a house. Now, the raw materials for building a house really are branches and boughs from trees. Um, the women would go and harvest the grass, prepare the grass for the roof structures. They would then be responsible for collecting the cattle dung, creating the mud and dung solution, which is then used to plaster the walls of the house. But it's the men's role to then roof the house. The women will do the decorative stuff, but the men will get on and do the hard, heavy lifting to seal the house off from the elements. So those roles evolve around those different areas. The women then responsible for gathering milk from the cattle, and the men would be responsible for gathering the blood from the jugular of the cattle. They are out in the field looking after the cattle, which in a sense is the economy of the Maasai. If you think we put our money in a bank and we watch it grow with a little bit of interest, they watch their money grow as those cows give birth and the herd increases in size. So it's, it becomes a fairly, and I'm not saying women are irresponsible, but they just see it as a very responsible job that the kids in their teens have to take care of. And it's just really evidence that we cannot paint any country with one cultural brush, that there are many layers to a country's and society's culture. And as in any marriage, no matter where you are, there is a collaboration of who does what and coming together for a common goal. What about education? How is it handled from a government standpoint and funded? Critical question and a very important one. Some time ago, I was reading an article that claimed that the Kenyan education system was the best in all of Africa. It was because of the way it was funded. So Kenya has, I suppose, there are three levels to their education system. The primary education starts when a child is six years of age, and that is an eight-year program. And I suppose they refer to it as, as primary school. The second level is a secondary education, which lasts for four years. So that'll bring the kids up to around about the ages of 17 or 18. And then you've got higher education, which is an additional four years after that. So those are the three levels of education that you can get in Kenya. The first two levels, primary and secondary, are fully paid for by the government. I guess the government is utilizing taxpayer money to fund the school system. And I suppose then the school system and the quality of the education will vary from, from one county to the next based on the tax base and how that money is collected and distributed. But your third level of education is self-funded, where you as a student would need to go out and raise capital to pay for your education, whether you get a loan, whether you get some sort of bursary or whatever that becomes an independent and private expense. They see education, certainly the primary and secondary level, as a basic human right. As it should be. Yeah. <laughs> as it should be globally. Big question, religion. Is there a national religion? Is it a diverse religion? Well, it's diverse. You've got a fairly large Arabic influence in Kenya. The old trade route was between the Gulf of Arabia and the east coast of Africa. And so the Arabs brought with them certain religious beliefs. And then you have, I suppose, the Christians that moved down from the north and influenced the cultures of Kenya as well. So there is diversity of religion. There's no one specific religion that governs people. They are religious people. They do observe their religions and pay respects, but it's not a single religion country. What is the most commonly held misconception about Kenyan people? I think there's so many. The Western world has strange views 
about the way people live and behave in places like Kenya and Tanzania and elsewhere. I've heard people talk about wild animals walking through the streets, roaming through the town of Nairobi, that sort of stuff. So that's entirely wrong. Well, Warren, thank you so much for a bit of Kenyan culture. Such an honor and pleasure to have you on board today. My pleasure, Javon. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.